What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to yet another episode of the T-Flip Show. Episode 6 is here now, live, ready to rock and roll. I've been really excited for this episode. There's been a lot coming, working towards this point. been talking to this guest for quite some time to get this set up and locked in. I think this has got to be one of the most unique episodes and unique guests I've had. I'm going to be joined by Nicholas Laidlaw today. Nicholas is a journalist, war veteran, and on top of that, an author. I mean, he's doing a lot of cool things. You're going to hear a lot about him. And I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you're on YouTube, as always, I ask you one thing and one thing only. Be a friend and tell a friend, right? Like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff. And same with you, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all my listeners. Go ahead and send this episode on over to somebody. If you enjoyed it, I'm willing to bet someone else that you know enjoyed it just as much as you did. So, friends, as always, thank you so much for listening, watching, and all the above. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Nick. All right, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate you. I'm excited for this, man. This has been something I've looking forward to uh, for a long time. So, first of all, thank you for joining me. Yeah, no problem. I'm looking forward to it, too. So Awesome. Well, hey, let's get right into it, man. So, you got this incredible, incredible Instagram page that you is titled Battles and Beers. Um, I want you to start by talking about that, where that, how that name came to be and what the page is all about for people who have no idea. Yep. So battles and beers was originally uh, a podcast in and of itself. And then, um, I started it with my buddy, Ricky Polina. He actually picked the name, uh, because we thought, well, we want something historical, but kind of down to earth. So in the Marine Corps, we call like, there's a place where people go to smoke and drink. It's called the smoke pit. And so it's like stories that would come from the smoke pit. So that's where like the battles came from and the beers, because I th- think that's where the truest, uh, war stories come from is when guys get together and they start drinking. And so <laughs> it started as a podcast where we would just talk about historical battles and stuff. And then it kind of molded into something different after that, where it was just primarily like an Instagram and Facebook page. And then, um, Ricky went and he's doing his own thing now. Uh, he's got his own podcast and he's, uh, working for like a, one of those bigger news companies. So he's, he's doing great. And I'm the, I'm the one that stuck with uh, B and B and when it was kind of just me by myself, that's when it kind of turned into, okay, I will, I'll read like a page of a book. So I'd be reading like with the old breed or something. And I write down like, that was a cool, interesting part of that book. And so I uploaded it to Instagram and Facebook. And then I did that enough. And then enough people started commenting like their own stories in the comments. And I thought, well, like, that's like a ton of history that isn't in books. And I think that's what I'm going to try to do now is find all of these stories that aren't written down somewhere and write them down. And so after that, it just became me creeping through YouTube comments going to different VA hospitals, sitting in the waiting rooms, talking to the guys there, like anywhere on the internet or in person you can imagine, that's where I've gone to find stories. That's incredible. So you get all these firsthand accounts that you go out and find your way through them, whether it's, uh, that's actually even cool. I kind of got the feel for it from your Instagram, obviously with the, you know, through social media is an incredible tool nowadays to meet people and get a hold of these people and hear their stories. But you you mentioned you went into even VA hospitals and you you spoke to veterans there. Yep. That that was a great place to find guys from World War II, Vietnam, Korea, all that stuff. Because a lot of them, they're not on Facebook or Instagram. So, So, and we're talking about veterans. Can you tell me a little bit, you're a veteran yourself, correct? Yep. So I had basically always wanted to be a Marine. 
Um, my family immigrated here from South Africa uh, in the early 90s. And then I was old enough to remember 9-11 happening. And I was old enough to remember seeing the Battle of Fallujah happen on TV. And I remember like, that's what I want to do when I grow up. And so it's the day I turned 17, I dragged my mom and dad down to the recruiting office and signed the papers. And then a year and a half later, I was I was in the Marine Corps. And I served from 2012 to 2019. Um, five years of that, I was active duty with 2nd Battalion, 6 Marines, and Charlie 4 Fast Company. And then <clears throat> from 2017 to 2019, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve in Des Moines, Iowa. So, okay. Yeah, it was, so- it was fun. I was a rifleman, uh, uh, team leader, squad leader, platoon sergeant, all that. So, and what, what led you away, I guess, for the lack of a better word, did you just decide that you wanted to kind of move on in your life or? Yeah, well, that- that's the thing is I think everyone will agree in the military. It's very much a love hate relationship. And so being in the infantry, if there's no war going on, you're not doing much other than playing pretend war in the woods. And I thought, well, like, I don't want to really waste the second half of my twenties, just not doing my job. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, I'll try this whole civilian thing out. And then getting out, it's scary. A lot of guys have a lot of trouble doing it. And I found that the best way to do it is to have a plan and a backup plan. Cause I originally wanted to be a cop when I got out and I did that for a year, hated it was, was not for me. The stress was there that I just didn't need in my life. And so then I started looking at education and I'm actually going to school now to be a history teacher. Wow. That's incredible. Good for you, Nick. That's killer. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. So what you you said that you did a police work for about a year and you found stress that came with it. Did you, was there even, I, I would think, I mean, given I'm naive to a civilian, right? There was more stress looking into police work than there was in the military when you were serving. Uh, I would say it's about, it's about equal. It's just, I worked at a small sheriff's department and so I was never really not working. Mm -hmm. And so it was me, another deputy and the sheriff. Gotcha. Okay. It was, it it felt like I was always at work and it was in a town of like 5,000 people. So I was eating Subway or Dairy Queen like five times a week. Man, that's, that's a diet right there. (laughs) It was was just not for me. Yeah, no, that, that, you know, it's, that's all part of it, right? Figuring it out as you go. And especially the number one thing you hear about veterans and after, you know, they're done serving. Okay. What's next? So I want to ask you about that is, is Mm -hmm. what was the plan? So you talk, right. We talked about police work, but how'd you get your mental right? Basically, what did you say to yourself? Like, okay, this is what I need to do and not get stuck. So I had watched a lot of my senior Marines leave the Marine Corps. And then like six, six months later, 12 months later, they'd be messaging us like, Hey, I really want to get back in. Like this just isn't for me. I don't know what I want to do and stuff like that. And I thought, well, I don't want to do 20 years, but I also want to be successful when I get out. And I think a, a big part, of veterans struggling to succeed when they leave is that they are not willing to let go of their service is the big part of it. And I'm not saying like, just forget you were a Marine or a soldier or airman, sailor, whatever, but it's like, they need to realize that civilians don't owe you anything. Like you're not just going to get handed a six figure job Mm -hmm. when you get out. My very first job leaving the Marine Corps was pushing carts at Walmart. 
Like that was a pretty good, pretty big gut check for me because like two weeks before that I was leading a squad of Marines and then I was pushing carts around in Walmart with a yellow vest on and it was just a total change. And it was definitely becoming a civilian humbles you because no one cares what you did. You could have been a green beret or, or something else, you know, pushing papers. Sure. Yeah. Pushing papers. No one cares. And so that's, I think is the, that was the hardest part for me about trying to be more successful is just letting go and just, giving into the system of civilian life. Like you, you, not everyone has their place, you know, cause like in the Marine Corps, a lot of guys, like everyone has their place and everyone knows what they're doing in the civilian world. Like I wanted to put people in their places all the time, but you just, you just can't do that. And yeah, so that's interesting. You mentioned that too. I, I forgot what I was watching or listening to recently. Actually, you know what? It was an old Joe Rogan. Uh, episode with the the gentleman I forget I can't think of his name but he was a guy who got saved uh, the lone survivor movie that they made it was, oh yeah I think it's Matthew Latner or something like that Marcus Luttrell oh uh, wow wasn't even remotely yeah. close but point is <laughs> but he talked about that about switching from the military to civilian life and he went from you know making orders taking orders in the military and then going to civilian life like wanting to do that but then wait that doesn't necessarily work and that's what no he mentions that he eventually went back to he went back to battle and back into the military despite Mm -hmm. the injuries that he faced so it's super interesting that you bring that i hear that in multiple cases so i i I want to kind of uh shift here back a little bit onto battles and beers and your page and everything so you, you said it first started as just taking history that's not already i guess we'll say written for the lack of a better word, and you're taking all these first down accounts that aren't aren't stored. Now yeah. we are in a very very unique time right now in our society. I mean, it yeah. is bizarre to say the least. I mean, that's even an understatement. And it seems that your page has really made a shift into what it's covering. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So before uh, the war in Ukraine started, I covered everything I could get my hands on. I um, got letters and diaries and journal entries from World War One. I. I spoke to World War II veterans in person and through email. Um, spoke to guys from Korea, Vietnam, the, the Rhodesian Bush War, Bosnia, the Chechen Wars, the global war on terror, like literally every, anything you can think of. I've probably talked to someone in that conflict on both sides. Actually, that's that's kind of what I pride myself on is my level of unbiased uh, reporting, if you want to call it that way, where it's I would speak to North Vietnamese soldiers the same exact way I would speak to their American counterparts during the war, because I feel like a lot of history is an echo chamber, if that makes sense. And so, like, think about like World War II stories that you hear, how many of them have you heard from the German perspective or the Japanese perspective? Next to none. Yeah, like next to none. It was the same with me as well. And then it's the, the whole other half of, of the story is not being told. Um, even if it is the good guys, bad guys, you know, how, whatever you want to call them, like that's literally half of the, the conflict that you're not hearing about. Like what did they feel and experience and stuff like that? And so I tried to get a hold of as many people as I possibly could. And then I remember in December, 
I kind of saw the war in Ukraine coming, where I at least saw that something was going to happen and it was it would be important that I'd be involved in it. And so I started building a network of contacts, if you want to call them that, in Ukraine. So it was Ukrainian soldiers, Western volunteers, civilians, and stuff like that. And I would argue that uh, that I was probably in the first hundred people to know outside of Ukraine that the invasion had started. Like, because literally as soon as the missiles and rockets started flying and troops crossed the border, I was getting text messages and oh my gosh, telegram messages, WhatsApp messages from guys in the country. Like, Hey, it started. And so then I immediately went to work right there. And then, so since then, because the war in Ukraine is just so huge and monumentous right now, um, I'm still documenting stories from other wars, Mm -hmm. but I'm not publishing them at, at the rate that I am uh, with the war in Ukraine going on right now. What makes the war Ukraine unlike any other? Because that's how it sure feels and sees, or is it more so because this is just the most current one that we've had in our society to the general public and that we've seen in recent years? Yeah, well, I'm not like a official historian or trained in this or anything like that, but it's been a long time since two uniformed armies have engaged in conventional warfare against each other, like at at least to this scale, especially in Europe. As far as I know, this is the largest war in Europe since World War II. I might be, I might be wrong. I'm pretty pretty sure it is. And so like you, you hear war stories about guys from like the global war on terror and stuff. And there are some really bad battles there. Mm -hmm. Like there were like Marja, Fallujah, Ramadi, Sangin, all of those were pretty intense, heavy battles, but the Taliban never had tanks or SU-25s, or these multiple purpose rocket systems, you know, like it's, it's definitely a different kind of war. And all of the volunteers that I've talked to who participated in the global war on terror that talk about their experiences in Ukraine, they're like, it's not even comparable. It's a completely different war. I think what, what, from a public standpoint for referring to myself and most others, I think the most like like ground shaking thing that made me realize was like, Oh shit, this is happening was seeing in the news. Like I think it was a Russian tank and then a a Ukrainian civilian trying to escape in a car. The Russian tank basically from what I recall backed up, ran it over and then back again. And it was like, okay, that is absurd. Cause and being younger too, I'd never seen something like that before war Mm -hmm. firsthand where it wasn't on the history channel or something. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. What were we going to say? Yeah, I think that I think I know what video you're talking about. And I think it was actually a Ukrainian tank. Oh, was it? Regardless of either side, right? Regardless of either side. But there's like definitely plenty of other videos out there. Like there's a Russian BTR that just unloads on this old man and a granny driving down the road. I remember seeing that in like March or something. And that, that for me is one of the like, man, this is like. This is real yeah, moments. Definitely. What I'm what I'm like super shocked by is the way Zelensky has held his ground and really like shown his worth, I guess, as a as a leader. But then there's some things that are said about him contrary to how he's treated his people in the past. And it seems like it's almost contradicting. Do you have a take mm-hmm. on that? Uh personally I'm not one to really delve into like the politics of war if that makes sense or like the Mm -hmm. politics of countries before and after 
uh, conflicts. For me, what I really try to like dig into is like the personal experiences of people experiencing uh, combat, especially in Ukraine. Uh, like all the time, if you go into the comments and battles of beers, there's people leaving like, oh, why this war should be happening or why it's not happening. And personally, like the, the reasons why it's happening or who's the good guy or who's the bad guy are not that important to me. Um, I think it's the stories that are on the ground, like what people are experiencing. That's what I'm interested in. Um, <clears throat> I will say, I do think Zelensky is, uh, an incredibly resilient person, whether he's a, a good guy or the boogeyman, you know, <laughs> whoever wants to look at it that way. Yeah. Um, he, I, I will respect that he, he did not leave the country. I know right. plenty of other world leaders who would have been out of there the second the war started, but he has not moved as far as I can tell. He's not changed clothes either. I always see him <laughs> in that like green get up, um, yeah, he's a very interesting guy. A lot of people have compared him to like the that that he's like the Ukrainian Winston Churchill stuff. Like that. <laughs> I don't I don't know how true it is, but right. you know, I think he's interesting. I definitely like to sit and have a beer with him. No kidding. But, yeah. aren't, aren't there accounts of him on the front lines with some of his guys from some of his civilians and? Counter- uh, I know from earlier in the the war, if you want to call it that, um, a lot of the verbiage and like the words you use in Ukraine needs to be very carefully picked. Uh, Cause some people will say the war started on February 24th and of this year. And then other people will say it started in 2014 when the Russians annexed Crimea. But I know I've seen pictures of him in the trenches with troops uh, prior to this February. I don't know about after. Gotcha. And what, what do you think? I'm trying to word my questions carefully because I love that what makes you unique and your account unique is that you don't get involved with politics. And that's where a lot of the mainstream media goes with it, right? It's beyond the first out counts. And again, that's what makes you unique and so incredible and makes your page so intriguing. But I'm just, I'm trying to make sense of where this war would be heading from both sides too, because it seems like Russia is not letting up despite some saying they're running out of materials and ammunition and Mm -hmm. rations and the same for the side of Ukraine too. So I'm curious if you had a take as to where do you think this is going to head? Is it going to end anytime soon? I think uh, that's an interesting question. And I've had this conversation with quite a few people. Um, Right now, I think both sides are at the point where they've lost enough men and material where they will not come to the table to talk about peace until they have real tangible gains to justify the losses they've sustained. Um, a very similar thing happened in world war one where like a year into the war, everyone was like, Oh shit, like this is really bad. Like we should talk about peace, Mm -hmm. but then this, the, the societies of these countries never would have accepted a peace because of the losses that they had incurred doing that. It's like, so you need something to justify the deaths of all of these people. And so I think I don't, so the war changes every day. I remember as soon as I got those text messages, like, okay, the Russians are here. I remember thinking, okay, three days from now, there's going to be a different flag flying over the government buildings in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I, I, I Everyone thought it, I feel kind of foolish for it now because I should have known just talking to these Ukrainian soldiers that they were not going to give up without a fight. But I thought, oh, well, that's it. Like the war is going to be over in a couple of days. 
a week went by, two weeks went by. Now we're almost six months into this. And it's gone both ways a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not a strategist, anything like that. But if I had to make a prediction, I would think that Russia will not gain too much more territory, but the Ukrainians will not have the resources to push them out of those territories. And so I think this will devolve into a slower paced war over time, something that is more um, reminiscent of the war from 2014 to 2021, where it's just trench fighting along long, excuse me, where it's trench fighting along long fronts. Um, For all I know, like the Russians end goal is still, total capitulation of Ukraine, but they also might accept the Donbass region. Um, I I don't really know. I don't think Zelensky will give up until all Russian troops have moved out of Ukraine. But it's it's hard to predict, man, because Uh, the Russian Russian goals of this war seem to constantly be changing. Like at first I thought thought they wanted um, Kiev or Kiev, however you want to pronounce it. And then they just abandoned that and said it was a feint and who knows what's going on? <laughs> it, do you, it almost seems like it, it going off what your opinion is, is where, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine won't push any further basically. Cause they don't want to overextend the minimal they have left as far as materials and men go. And then same with Russia, it seems as there, they won't be really overextending, pushing any further. So is, are you saying like they'll potentially be like a neutral zone to some extent, like uh, like North and South Korea would have? Uh. Maybe. I, I, I don't really know. I, I'll quote uh, Dan Carlin here, where both of these guys seem to be like punch drunk fighters at the moment. Like they've just hammered away at each other so much that they, I don't think either one has a whole lot of steam left in them. Right. And so who knows, maybe there'll be a, a lull in the fighting as both sides just kind of rearm and regroup and then start new offensives. Uh, I, I have no idea. The the situation on the front changes every day, depending yeah. on what you're looking at it. It's just, yeah, because it comes down to, like you, and obviously me to the smallest extent compared to you, is trying to make sense of it. That's all it comes yeah. down to. Obviously, other than, like you said, good guy and boogeyman, as you reference, you know. So I want to talk a little bit about the firsthand accounts that you've dealt mm-hmm. with. I want, to, I want to hear some of the stories, because obviously there's your Instagram page, and I already have a few I picked out where I was like, well, that is something else. Tell me some of the like key ones that you could recall that mainstream media hasn't covered or what doesn't cover at all. Mm-hmm. So I will note uh, for everyone listening that I think that a large appeal to my platform is that I allow people to submit stories completely anonymously. So the unit is removed, the location is removed, their name is removed, any identifying information that could give away their identity or the location of the unit is removed. Uh, that's for two things for their safety. And then um, just to like cover their own asses basically. Mm-hmm. And some people get upset that I don't like post proof of people's identities and stuff like that. But I, I don't care personally. Yeah. Uh, I tell everyone to take these stories with a grain of salt always, because it's impossible to verify any war story, even with the citation 100%, because there's always going to be details left out. There's always going to be details added um, so just putting that on the table right there is that uh, the majority of the stories I document are anonymous. Um, only I know their names, where they are, stuff like that. Uh, so 
trust me, don't trust me. It's up to, up to the people watching and people reading. Um, the, I don't know if I want to call it my favorite story, but the one that had the biggest impact on me is, um, is a Ukrainian soldier by the name of, uh, Anton Krill. And so he fought in, uh, Mariupol and he was, uh, defender of the Azovstal steel plant. And I met him in early May. I don't met him. I, we found each other on Instagram and we started talking and he gave me like his entire story of the battle from like day one, um, all the way up until the day he was killed. And so, um, May 14th, May 13th, I had messaged him. We'd like finalized our like interview. And I, the, the last question I had was, um, what do you want to do when the war is over? And that he said when they get uh, pulled out and relieved from there, that he was going to marry his girlfriend. And then just a couple hours later, he was killed by a drone. And that was confirmed by it. <clears throat> that was confirmed by another guy in his squad that I'd been talking to as well. And so I, I don't know. I, th I don't know why, but you fo I formed these weird connections with a lot of these guys that I'm talking to, because most of them are confessing like the worst days of their lives to me. And I feel like I'm half freelance journalist and half therapist sometimes. And so, I don't know, you just, I just form like these weird friendships and stuff like that. And it's happened a lot of times where I interview someone and then come find out like a couple days, weeks, months later, they get killed. But Anton was the one that, um, hit me the hardest because he was killed that same day that I had spoken to him yeah. and I had spoken to him pretty in depth about his experiences. And I've talked to his brother since then, his brother was also fighting in the city and he was wounded and evacuated before the encirclement. And I've talked to his girlfriend as well. Um, and it's just, it's just sad, but I I'll always, uh, I'll always remember the name Anton, Anton Krill. He was 22 years old when he died. That's some powerful stuff, man. I mean, that that just, I don't even know the guy. And just from you telling me the story, it gave me chills. I mean, I, I, it, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine that. And that's a powerful statement to say that you're half, you know, freelance journalist, half therapist. Because these guys are almost like, find uh, like peace with, you know, yeah, getting off the of chest. And, and that's what I, again, I, I sound like a broken record. But that's what makes you and your, what you do so incredibly special and unique compared to other, I guess we'll say news sources uh, regarding war and everything. Thanks. I, I appreciate that. And I, uh, I take a lot of pride in the, the platform that I'm building. Um, and it's done a lot of good things for veterans in the past, whether it's like just venting a story. And then they, a lot of them read the comments and they'll say like, it's just, it's nice to be noticed. Mm -hmm. A lot of that. They say it, it feels good to see that like they're, what they are enduring isn't being ignored is, is a big part of it. So with, with these, what you hear a lot about military and soldiers and I guess, uh, soldiers that have seen war and stuff and whether it's family at home or these soldiers and the bond that they grow in between each other and then relating to you and the, like you said, connection air quotes around them for mm -hmm. again, uh, that you grow with them. Do you almost feel the need to desensitize to an extent and same with these soldiers to almost protect yourself from being hurt in this scenario? Cause it's war. Sadly enough, it's war. People. Yeah. Die. Uh, I do. Um, 
I had a talk with my girlfriend's dad about it because a couple weeks ago or months ago when the whole uh, encirclement was happening of Azovstal and those guys were like slowly starving to death and those there were pictures and videos of these guys with horrible wounds in the uh, the hospital wing of their underground bunkers and they're just rotting. And I was talking to a lot of the soldiers inside of there and I was talking to a lot of their family members as well, like their girlfriends, their wives, their mothers, and all of it was just, it was like Holocaust level sad. Yeah. And it was happening like right there. And I was, I was involved in it. Like I was getting pictures and videos from inside and they were all talking to me, like essentially of like the worst case scenario of, of something that can happen to a unit in war. And it was, it was getting to me. I was it, it, it was weighing pretty heavy on me. It, um, so much so that I had to get, I was put on anti-anxiety medication. I was having like the daily panic attacks uh, because I think, and I, I don't want to blame it on the stress of that conflict, but it definitely played a part in it. And so since then I've had to like detach myself a lot from talking to um, a lot of these guys. So when I try to do interviews, a lot of the time, I don't try to get too involved in their lives. If that makes sense. Definitely. No, it does. I mean, if I could only imagine the position that you're in, because your goal is to put out the most, I guess, informational product out there we're calling it product but that's not the word Mm -hmm. but basically story sorry not product story is that you want to gather all the information you can and learn about that person that account as much as possible by doing that consciously or subconsciously you're growing connections exactly so it's like damn if you do damn if you don't Mm -hmm. yeah you can't you can't get these stories without getting into the nitty-gritty details because especially what i try to do is I try to get them to tell me about the things that they think about when they're alone. You know, like when you're just staring off into space, like what are you thinking about? And you don't think about random bullshit, you know, like you're thinking about stuff that traumatized you. And so when they're telling me that, like, you can't just be like, Oh, thanks for the story. Like I sit there and I talk to them. Like, I'm like, wow, man, like this is, this is quite a story. Like if you want to talk about it, you know, like I know plenty of other people have been through some things like this. I've been through some similar things like that. Like I'm not just a, a a guy on a phone, you know, like I'm, I can talk to you, you know, like, so that's why I say I'm half journalist, half therapist. Right. It's, (laughs) I'm I'm taking a lot to unpack here because I mean, this is something I've never heard these things. I mean, outside of your Instagram, it's one thing to read it. It's a whole nother thing to, you know, hear it. And it makes you, again, like we're talking about, so much more connected to the story and be like, mm-hmm. it's it's just overpowering in a good way, though. It's incredible, yeah. Nick. I love it. I want to bring up a specific guy. Well, actually, no, before I go there, I want to talk about this. Is I want to talk about the Freedom Fighters. And for the people that don't know, those are people that have came from the United States and who have wanted to go and support for the Ukraine, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. So how has that come to be? Because... United States basically said we don't want to send any soldiers because that's us getting over-involved and that becomes a war against Russia and that's something that we don't want to do right now. But at the same time, they want to help Ukraine. So how does that all work if someone wants to go help Ukraine with the freedom fighters that are there now and even more to come, if so? 
So there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, at the beginning of the war, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people were sending me messages asking how to go to Ukraine. And I was like, I'm not a recruiter. I, I basically have no idea, but I can look for you if you want. Um, and how most people did it in the early part of the war was they flew to Poland. They either hitchhiked or got a taxi to the Ukrainian border and then just showed their passport to the border guards there and were like, I'm here to fight. Where do I have to go? And then they just get told where to go. And then from there, they'd get their ID picture taken. They'd sign a contract or something, and then they'd get sent off to a foreign legion unit. Uh, other guys literally just walk into the country, meet a group of partisans or Ukrainian foreign legion, something like that. And they join that way. Uh, there's lots of different ways to join and you can leave whenever you want from what I understand. And so I know a lot of guys who showed up, uh, got wounded and then just went home. And I know a couple others as well who showed up and then just deserted their units. They were like, shit, this is not Afghanistan. These guys are, the Taliban didn't have SU-25 bombers. I'm getting out of here. And that's what they did too. So you use the word deserting. Are you talking about they basically leave? Oh, yeah, they out? deserted. Like, they just ran away. Wow. And, and to the what? Go to the point to go home wherever they've yep, they ran away to go home. And, you know, and, and I've talked to a lot of the guys there that were in these units that they had deserters in, deserters in and no no blame is held. You know, like, it's it's a different kind of war. It's a war, like we talked about at the start of this episode, is that it's a war that we haven't seen in quite some time. Yeah, the, the level of brutality and the volume of people dying is just something we have not, at least in my lifetime, not experienced anything quite like it. And are these freedom fighters mostly veterans? Are they United States civilians? I mean, who, wh who makes up most of them? Uh, so that's an interesting question. There are a ton from the country of Georgia. And so Georgia was invaded by Russia in 2008. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, if you've, I've, I've documented a ton of his stories on BNB. His name is Viking. I don't know, for anybody listening, uh, Viking is from Georgia. Um, I've got his, his friend uh, Zura as well. I've interviewed him. There's a lot of fighters from Poland, uh, the UK, the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, um, Brazil, even, even some from Korea. Um, they're from everywhere. That's, I would have assumed that majority were, I feel like it's either veterans or even just. Yeah, the uh, majority are, are, the majority are veterans. Um, there's also some who are former cops or are cops currently, uh, EMS guys, and not all of them are going to fight either. A lot of them are going uh, to be aid workers. So that's running supplies into different villages that are cut off or evacuating families, stuff like that. Or they work in Poland, helping with the refugee camps there. So there's a lot, there's a lot of roles to help support Ukraine that don't involve directly fighting the Russian soldiers. How does, uh, isn't, is, is there a language barrier? Cause I feel like these freedom fighters, let's say they just English speaking freedom <laughs> fighters who go there. Is there much of a language barrier or how's that work? There, there is. Yeah. But a surprise, especially to me, because I remember when this war started, I thought, Oh shit, like I've, Google translate better be on the money now. <laughs> but, but a, a surprising number of Ukrainians do speak English and they speak it pretty well. 
Uh, they don't quite understand the slang that we use, mm -hmm. but if you're just speaking like a normal human being, they'll most, I would say can understand you. Um, but yeah, there are language barriers and from what I understand in a lot of these units that have Americans or British soldiers in them, they have like Ukrainian handlers who speak English and Ukrainian or Georgian and Ukrainian or uh, something else like that. I wanted to bring up one specific guy. I remember when I first, cause I found your page, you know, some time ago before I reached out to you and this is a little bit more recent story. And cause I know it's, there's billions, it feels like, of the stories and the soldiers that are there in Ukraine right now. And the one guy that caught my attention immediately in the story that I've become fascinated with was uh, Nightcrawler. Uh, <laughs> Nightcrawler. I, I thought that was so freaking cool. So I'm going to share my screen here so obviously you know the story, but then so we could see it here. Um, I absolutely loved every ounce of it, of uh, his story and what he had to bring to the table here. So tell me a little bit about Nightcrawler here as I pull up his picture so people could see who are watching on YouTube and then our listeners, you could help describe it as well. Yep. So Nightcrawler, uh, his name is Lee McGreevy, I believe. And I had seen pictures of this guy uh, during the Battle of Moshun. And I had heard and talked to... So I, I, I will say I've probably documented the most stories from this specific battle than any other news agency reporter in the whole world i've talked to dozens of guys who fought there um and the night crawler is in so many pictures and so many people have like brought up the name of just how like just night crawler and how odd of a person he was <laughs> and so viking i was talking to him a couple weeks ago and he's like have, have i ever given you my night crawler story and, he, and I was like, no, but like, I've heard this name and seen this guy's picture so many places, like I need to get it down, you know? And so he told me that story that's on the screen right there. And I posted it and immediately I was like, I've got to find this guy. Like I've, <laughs> Nightcrawler's out there in the world somewhere. I've got to find him. He's like the world, he's probably the most interesting person that fought in Ukraine. I mean, uh, the first thing for me when I first, I think it was this picture here. The first one I saw, when I first saw it, I took him as just a very dark-skin-toned man, like yeah. <laughs> everyone else. And for the people who are listening to this episode right now, Nightcrawler is a guy who is quite literally covered in tattoos head to toe. And I think it's quote at one of these two posts that there's not an inch of skin on his body that isn't covered with tattoos. Is that right? Yeah. yeah he's, one, he's probably in the top 1% of people in the world that have tattoos. <laughs> it's every inch of him. I think even his eyelids are tattooed. I think so. Cause I think I went even to find his Instagram here. I think you tagged him in one of the posts. Yep. I forgot which one. Um, but it was just so fascinating. So what was for the pe people who don't know, and they could always go to your Instagram read in depth. But if you were to give a gist of his story, what's Nightcrawler's story. So Nightcrawler, uh, he decided to go fight in Ukraine. Um, I, how I found him was the guy who drove him into Ukraine and drove him to like the foreign legion base. And he said that he found Nightcrawler wandering around a refugee camp with no money and no idea where to go. And so he just dropped him off and Nightcrawler ended up in that unit that went and fought in Moshun. And so, yeah. And there were just tons of crazy stories about him about, and then like Viking said, he like rarely ever saw 
nightcrawler with a rifle. He just had like six or seven steak knives on him. And that he actually does. So there was an allegation that nightcrawler had body armor sewn onto his stomach. Yes. I almost forgot that. But he does. It's it's subdermal body armor. So it's like into his stomach or his chest. Yeah, into his stomach. It's a subdermal, like soft armor. (laughs) That's absurd. (laughs) How does even one go about that? Because you can't go to a doctor and ask for that, can you? (laughs) I mean, that is bizarre. If I've ever heard of someone being the closest thing to a living Terminator, it's it's Nightcrawler. (laughs) That's awesome. I know he just looks like an absolute unit. So that's the again. Out of he, for, he's also like one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I feel like the guys that look like that, because if you're going to go off looks, right? That's the first thing, no matter what realm of our society we're talking about, people go off yeah. looks first to make a judgment on a person. He looks like he's hard ass jerk. Don't mess with him. He'll rip your head off type person. Yeah, he's, but, yeah, he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. And I just got to say, if there's ever a movie made about the Battle of Moshun and like the defense of Kiev, like he's got to play himself. There's no actor in the world that could be a better Nightcrawler than Nightcrawler. So did he say how uh, how the tattoo – I don't know because you're probably focused on so much more. But did he ever talk about how the tattoos came to be or no? No, I, did, I never talked to him about yeah. that. I talked to him about his experiences uh, during the battle and all that stuff. I mean, he actually had to go home because there was a like a court case he was involved in because someone in the UK tried to shoot him with a shotgun. <laughs> so, what? Yeah. What? Wow. Uh, well – that that's nuts to say yeah. once again, but he, yeah, he's, he's super interesting. Yeah. So, and for the people watching and listening right now, again, battles and beers, Instagram page there, that is one of, let's see, 708 posts to be exact of mm-hmm. incredible stories, people. I mean, and that, and that's just tipping the iceberg of things I saw. So if I were to pull something up here too, uh, Nick, if you have anything in reference, let me know as we're talking about it here, because I yep. mean, I would love for people to see this who aren't familiar with your Instagram account. So is there a video or photo a story that you'd want to bring up in regards here? Let me look around here. If you got one to pull up real quick. I don't right off the top of my head. I put you on the spot here. but Okay. There's a couple that I really like. Because I'd love for you to kind of break it down and hear it from your voice. One thing to, you know. Uh, read it but then if you could describe the story and tell me about it and what you heard uh, that'd be incredible yep so there's one guy i interviewed um a couple months ago his name is yuri and he was a ukrainian marine uh defending mariupol and his story is actually a couple posts long it's like six or seven parts because it's so long and it's the defense so he was in the trenches day one of the war Russians came and pushed them out of that area. So they retreated to Mariupol. And then he talks about fighting like the factory network there and just being under like constant Russian assaults and stuff like that. And so they eventually, they were running out of food. They were running out of water. They're running out of ammunition. And so they had to, they had two choices. They could surrender or they could attempt a breakout. And he was part of the group that attempted a breakout. And so I remember there was uh, footage relatively early into the battle of, um, yep, that's him. That's Yuri right there. Yeah. There was footage relatively early in the battle of uh, Russian tactical bombers bombing a, uh, a convoy or a caravan of Ukrainian vehicles. And that was his unit. 
And so a whole bunch of them died and it was just this horrible thing, but a bunch of them did manage to break through the encirclement. And so he and a couple other guys managed to like kind of avoid Russian forces for a couple of days and they got ambushed and shot in uh, by Russian uh, special forces. And he ended up becoming a POW. And I believe he was shot three to five times and he was in a wheelchair for a long time. Oh my goodness. Yep. So he was a Russian POW. He was in, uh, he was captured by the Russians and then released a couple months ago. And so I talked to him about his entire story and it's just one of those crazy ones where like, it could be a book, man. I, what I don't understand Nick is how you're not, I mean, given you have an incredible following on your Instagram, but how you're not more known. I mean, these stories are unlike any other, you can't find them anywhere else. And I don't know how you're not more, world renowned known, I guess we'll say, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's no, no, awesome. That, that would be nice, but you know, I'm just basically building a following hundred people a day, you know, yeah. like I mean, the, the important thing to me is that like, I don't get like famous or sell books, anything like that. It's that I get as many of these stories written down as possible. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I care about is like, I could have a following of like 200 people, but as long as I get like, three stories a day, one story a day. Like I'll, I'll be happy. How do you find these guys? Now that we're talking, we're talking about the, all these stories. Yeah. That's the interesting part. So I originally, it was, like I said, it was a lot of like creeping in YouTube comments and stuff like that. Um, But then once I got to a following of about 30,000 followers, I started making like, wanted posters if you want to call them that and i'd post them in my story where it's like hey i'm looking for these kinds of people in this part of the world if you know someone or you are someone who is one of these people send me a message and so i get a ton of stories that way because people share them uh and they just end up reaching out i mean every time i upload one of those wanted posters someone responds like hey i know a guy or I am that guy, something like that. So that's a big one. And then another way is the following just sends me the Instagram, Facebook page or WhatsApp telegram number of a person. And they're like, Hey, this is a soldier. Send a message, tell him X sent you. And so that's how I get a lot of stories as well. And how do your interviews conduct? Like, how do you go about them? Once you get a hold of them? Uh, Sometimes they are over like voice messages. So I'll ask them questions. And then they'll respond with a voice message so I can transcribe it. I don't typically like doing like zoom sessions or something like that because I'm just typing like crazy and I don't have a chance to like get all the stories written down properly. What I prefer to do is I'll give them like a list of questions and then I give them as much time as they want and they can sit and type it out because I find that stories can be a lot more raw. They're a lot more truthful and a lot more detailed if you've, got time to sit down and like really think about like how those snaps of bullets coming over your head felt, you know? Cause like, if you're just talking in a conversational manner, like, yeah, we got shot at then we ran to this building and I killed a guy and that was it, you know? But if like, you can really sit down and get a chance to like sit and type it out and like recollect all these things in your memory, you can just recall all these details and put them on paper. And that's what, so I prefer to let them type it out. Yeah. And then it takes, you, it takes a lot longer, but 
I think the quality of the story that comes out of it is just vastly superior. Quality is always so much better than quantity. So the the stories are getting pumped out, you know, but they don't Mm -hmm. have the details that we're talking about and the quality, then what does it matter? Yeah. Um, What was I going to ask? I wanted to know about, okay, once they've written it out, are you kind of rewriting it or you, is it copy and paste? Uh, it It depends for the most part. I try to leave it as intact as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. And so that way for people reading it, it feels like you're reading the exact same message that I got. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like these soldiers are just sending out a mass text to everyone. And so it's like, you're really reading their words, their grammar, like the way they spell and all that stuff. I'll change certain things like huge spelling mistakes or like punctuation, stuff like that, just to make it a little more readable because people are always going to complain no matter what. But for the most part, I just leave the stories completely intact, just the way they are. And I don't, I don't touch them if I don't have to. That's awesome. They keep it yeah. entirely authentic. I love it. Makes mm-hmm. the stories feel even more real and firsthand, yeah. you know, I, I, cause you mentioned about the people that, you know, Oh, how real is this? Is this fake? Da da da. You know, it's like, who are you to lie about it? If anyone's going to, you know, it's going to be the people reaching out to be, but even then again, what's mm-hmm. the point? What, why would someone lie about an account in a story like that? Yeah. I get a lot of like, Oh, this is fake accounts. Like, Oh, this is fake comments on stories and stuff. One, I don't care. Like if you don't believe it happened, I, I don't care. And neither does the author. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the important thing is that the story is out there and some people will believe it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's what I care about. Um, again, I tell everyone to read every single story with a grain of salt because things are obviously going to be left out. They're obviously going to be exaggerated or played down, you know, but I think it, it is important to question things. Um, I do get sent fake stories. Uh, quite often, especially from the uh, global war on terror generation. I got a lot of fake stories from there. And then a lot of fake stories from uh, the Western volunteers as well. A lot of them are greatly exaggerating some of the stories they're being told. And so when I am doing the documentation process, I do ask questions like, okay, so where did this happen? Like, what date did it happen? Like, was it in a city? Was it in a village? Like, where was it in the village? Stuff like that. Is that how you weed out kind of the, the BS? Yeah. And usually a lot of the time, if it sounds too Hollywood, it is, it is made up and I don't post it and stuff like that. But will you call them out for it? Or do you just kind of leave it be? I don't care. I'll just leave it be. Like, <laughs> I love your attitude towards it. I love just the don't <laughs> care. Either, you know, it's the facts or the facts. And after that, don't care. I'm not going to waste yeah. my time. Um, I want to, I was curious regarding like, I mean, so these are, we talked, I just mentioned there's 708 posts on the account and mm-hmm. really that comes down to 708 stories. What is your takeaway from all this? I mean, this is an ever growing thing that you have with your page and the, what you're doing to this point and going forth. What's your takeaway at this point? What have you learned? What has changed about you for good or for worse, whatever it may be? I think the biggest thing that I've taken from this is that we are all far more alike than we are different. Um, Pain is international. Suffering is international. Um, Courage is international. It's not exclusive to any one side of a military. Uh, I have interviewed Russian soldiers. And a lot of the time, if I didn't label it as a Russian soldier, 
people would have no idea because he's talking about how much he misses home, how much he hates this fighting, stuff like that, you know? And even when I talk to the Taliban, like a lot of them join the Taliban for the same exact reasons that I joined the Marine Corps, where it's like you felt compelled to do something and the Marine Corps is the best way to do it, or the Taliban was the best place to do it, you know? And so it's really kind of made me realize that we are all vastly more similar then we are different, especially in war. And it does bring out the very best in people and it does bring out the very worst. Um, I'll just uh, talk about some Russian soldiers here real quick. No, please do. Um, yeah, so a lot of people get upset that I talk to Russians, but you know, like I said earlier on that it needs, to, both sides need to be documented. Um, I'm not uploading them on Instagram anymore because one, they just get banned right away. And really? two, yeah, they almost immediately. And it's not the like pro-Ukrainian side that complains so much. It's the pro-Russian side because a lot of the soldiers are not conforming to the propaganda pieces that are being pushed by the Kremlin. And so I've talked to a lot of soldier, German, not German soldiers, <laughs> Russian soldiers who are not quite on board with all of this. And there was a story I posted a couple months ago. It was like right at the beginning of the war of a Russian deserter. He ran away. And I just got in contact with him again, three days ago. Can't say where he is, but he made it. And it's quite a journey. And it's another one of those things where it's like, we're all more alike than we are different. Well, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, all of these soldiers, they just want to go home and they want to sit down and have dinner with their families. Yeah. that's There's definitely pieces of shit on both sides. Okay. Definitely. I've seen, I've seen video evidence and firsthand accounts of horrible things Russian soldiers have done. And then on the flip side of that, I've also seen videos of Russian soldiers on their knees with their hands tied behind their backs, getting shot in the head, like one by one at the end of a road. Like there are good and bad people on both sides of the war. Yeah. And I do have my own personal views on the war. I believe Ukraine has a right to sovereignty and to govern itself. Uh, I don't think this invasion was justified, but that doesn't mean I believe every Russian soldier is Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. Okay. A lot of them, the vast majority of them were the same exact thing as me. I have no ill feelings towards the Taliban, you know, or I guess that's not true, but, <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> their own personal motivation. Like they didn't choose to go. Okay. And a lot of people are like, Oh, well you can just desert and leave, you know, well you can, but there's also a very high chance that you're going to be caught and executed and your family's going to be punished. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier just to go with the crowd than it is to go against the wave, you know? And so it's not me making excuses for one side or the other. It's just life is not as simple and easy as some people are trying to make it out to be. Yeah, it's not cut and dry. It's so far. Yeah, it's not cut and dry or black and white. No. So what I've heard from, I don't know how reliable these sources really are, but from what I've heard regarding the Russian troops, at the very start of it, when they first started invading, a lot of Russian soldiers were either lied to or misled as to what the full intentions were of this war and invasion, why they were doing it. Because at the end of the day, it's said that, you know, Ukraine and Russia, they see each other as brother and sisters. And then these soldiers are told to go shoot them, basically. Is that 
true? Have you heard that from these first hand accounts from Russian Russian soldiers? Yeah, uh, I will read a little bit of that story from that Russian that I was talking about because he was talking. Uh, and this isn't published, right? You haven't. This is not published. Okay. And it probably will not be until I publish my book. Let me find it real quick. So this is two different stories. One is from a Russian deserter and one is from a Russian who fought in Mariupol. First one is from the Mariupol guy. So it is true. I thought I was killing Nazis. They told us that their government had turned out Slavic brothers. I turned our Slavic brothers into Nazis and that we were going to liberate them. I was with the third guard Spetsnaz brigade. My first mission in Mariupol was to take out an Azov machine gun team that had been killing our infantry. So, and then later on in the story, he goes on to talk about like, these guys are not all Nazis. Like there definitely are some Nazis in Ukraine, but it's like, we were lied to. And then the deserter was talking about how he also completely believed the propaganda and that he knew an invasion of Ukraine was coming. He was in the VDV airborne. And so they knew beforehand that they were going to be dropping into specific places in Ukraine, but he broke his leg uh, on getting off of a truck. And so he said what saved his life was breaking his leg because it gave him time to sit and think about what they were doing instead of just going along with the invasion. And so he ended up running away once his leg was healed enough to run. And uh, yeah, so he's safe and sound now. That's good. I mean, it's, I would have a hard time imagining with something like that because <laughs> these are humans we're talking about. Like you said, we're all human. We're, we all are a lot more alike than we realize. And so as a soldier, you're trained to take orders without question, do as what's told to the people who are superior to you. But yeah. we all have brains. We all have our emotions and all these things. And I, I feel like in a scenario like this for us more particularly, so these Russian soldiers, I feel like it'd be so hard to sit there and, you know, act as if a zombie and just take orders as you're told without second thing as any second thoughts about it. Because I mean, they're, they're going in there to kill their own brothers and sisters for all they know, you know, and the way that they're related, it's absurd. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how the Russian army works. Um, just a couple of days ago, I talked to a former Russian soldier who is living in the United States. Now he's, uh, about our age and he was a conscript. And so he was forced to join the Russian army. And he was talking about they get obedient. The Russian army gets obedience out of soldiers through brute force. And so they were talking about how they were like horribly hazed and like beaten and like forced to like clean toilets with like their bare hands and stuff like that. And so especially with the conscripts, it's easier to get them to do things that you want them to do because there's, they're afraid of you, you know? So it's either we shell this town or my company commander shoots me in the leg, you know, it's stuff like that. And so I, it's like, again, I'm not making excuses for anyone because at the end of the day, you're still the one in charge of making your own decisions, mm -hmm. but there's definitely coercion at play. Yeah, and, and I can and, confirm that a lot of conscripts had no idea they were in Ukraine. What, like when it started, they didn't know. The they had no idea. One told me that they were told they were going on a training exercise, um, 
And then he said his platoon sergeant asked the lieutenant where they were going. And he said, just to shut the fuck up and go. And then they started getting shot at. They had no idea they were in Ukraine. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so, that's, and that's what I was talking about. I feel like I've heard stuff like that before. Yep. It, <laughs> it's absurd. I can't imagine. I mean, cause that's only stuff I feel like you hear about in, not even hear about seeing movies or, or stories. Yeah, and, this, and fiction, you know? Yeah. It sounds made up. A lot yeah. of this is so crazy. It sounds made up. It's hard to believe truthfully yeah. in the sense of imagining it and being like, but put yourself in that position. People need to understand like Eastern societies like Russia and Western societies like the United States are just so vastly different. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like it's one, it's like population control and like controlling people and like believing propaganda. It works in both countries, but it's like, it's very effective in Russia, especially when like, you don't have many opportunities for work. And so that conscript that I talked to, he said, you have two choices. You either serve in the army or you become a police officer or you work uh, in the, in the, what's it called? Like the oil field, stuff like that. Oh, wow. And he's like, well, that's why so many of the, that's why such a large percentage of the Russian army is just poor kids with no education who blindly follow orders is because that's the only ch- choice they've got. Yeah, that's horrible. I can't. Yeah. What, 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 what life is there? What goals can you set? Because these poor kids, I think about, who set these goals and aspirations for themselves growing up, and then they realize the crude reality of what options they have, talking about Russian civilians turning soldiers or police officers or oil field workers, as you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, terrible. So I don't want to have people thinking I'm sympathizing with Russians too much because they are making their own choices. So I see I will your talk point about, though. I don't think yeah. you are. I, I see your point. I will talk about some of the Ukrainian uh, suffering and courage as well. I've talked to plenty of Ukrainians who dropped their families off somewhere else in Europe and went back to fight. And a lot of these guys were civilians like weeks before that. And then they're in uniforms with basically no training and they're all hundred percent willing to fight and die for Ukraine. And I think that is just something so crazy and that you would see so few other places in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking to a Western volunteer and he was asking why none of like so many people in these villages that were supposed to evacuate, never evacuated. Like they're actively getting shelled. The Russians are there. And the response was that, if we leave, it makes the Russians think that we are weak and our country is weak and we don't want to fight. And so there's like civilians, like women, children, old people staying put to do like their part for the war effort. Like everyone in Ukraine is contributing. And I I think it's crazy. It's like, it's contribution on a level that like we haven't seen since the second world war. Mm -hmm. To see a a whole country come together like that in all aspects. Yeah, it's like a whole country of Winston Churchills. It's crazy. <laughs> I like that reference. The whole nothing, country. nothing. I have nothing but respect for you, the Ukrainian people. It's I, amazing. I totally agree. I couldn't agree any more with you on that. So I want to ask you something, Nick. We, I feel like I love every ounce of this. I feel like we could talk another two hours about <laughs> Ukraine and everything, and your knowledge is unlike any other. But I want to focus on something here, and potentially the last yep. topic is that you've written a book. You referenced it a few times here and there, sprinkled out throughout mm-hmm. this episode. Um, tell me about your book titled, uh, remind me, what is it? What War Did to Us. And tell me what it's about and what led you to writing it. 
Yep. So what war did to us was basically a product of cyberbullying from the community of Battles and Beers. And so I had never intended to write a book, um, but then I kept getting so many comments like you need to put all these into a book, man. Like you need to write a book. You need to write a book. You need to write a book. It just never ended. And so one day I made an announcement. I was like, fine, like I'm putting all of these stories into a book. And so it's a compilation of stories from 1914 to November of 2021. So it's got over 30 different wars in it and perspectives from both sides of that war. So like World War One to now. And there's even some uh, stories in there that don't involve combat. There's some from training and like other funny stories in there and uh, published it last November. It's done surprisingly well. Uh, it's a self-published book through Amazon. Um, all of the big boy publishers that I had reached out to thought my book idea would be stupid, but who's laughing now? There you go. Uh, I like it. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, but yeah, so I'm going to, I'm actually doing a couple more books right now. Uh, one is going to be another volume of just a big compilation of wars from forever. And another one will be just on Ukraine. And so the one that is just on Ukraine, I'm at, I was actually editing right before we left here and it's got about 300 pages in it. Wow. That's just stories from Ukraine. You got so, that many pages on just Ukraine, which is a far yeah, so short, I, six months. Plan, yep. So the plan was, okay, I'll, when the war is over, I'll publish a book. But now it's like, there's no real end in sight. And it's like, I can't have like a 2000 page book. You have an so, encyclopedia on your hands. Yep. So it'll be just the first 150 days of war. So the cutoff for this current volume of Ukraine is July 24th. So is this a foreshadowing to a potential volume two following this as well? There, yeah, there will definitely be another definitely. volume. So not even just foreshadowing. Lock it. Yeah. Lock it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> write that down. Write that down. Yeah, write that down. <laughs> Nick, I love it. You're an incredible dude, man. I I've loved every bit of this conversation. Your excessive knowledge on this stuff. I mean, because. I'm trying to wrap it up, but I have more questions I even think about. I was like, here's another question as to why. Why has all of a sudden mainstream media was covering this? Throw them out. It was you couldn't get away from it if you wanted to. And now all of a sudden it felt like after about two months, it's like, meh. And you would think if you just watch mainstream media, there's nothing going on in Ukraine. It's either just done or kind of just trickled out. But that's so far from the case. Do you yeah, have an answer to that? Probably, this is probably the bloodiest stage of the war. There are several like large battles going on right now. Now, and I see nothing about it in the news. Yeah, nothing. Uh, nothing. And so that's that's one thing I hope people remember is that it wasn't mainstream media who told the stories of this war. It was your small grassroots independent reporters, journalists, and photographers. Mm-hmm. So I've had several mainstream media platforms. I'm not going to name them, but they have tried to poach my sources and my stories without giving me credit. Um, wow. That is something I do get a little booty hurt about is I don't gatekeep stories because yeah. they're not one, they're not mine, but I do conduct the interviews. So like, if you're going to share it, the proper thing to do is at least like cite me as the guy who gave it to you. But I have right. had several big ones in the U S that have just used my stuff without asking permission. What? Why yeah. do they feel so entitled to do something like that? I, I feel know, like, man. You would think with maybe a, to not even justify it, but maybe a small page, a, a small news source, but you are far from that. If you ask me, just shy of a hundred thousand followers. And yeah, they about, have, 
Yeah, just shy, like ninety nine thousand now, something like that. Yeah, that's absurd. That unnamed big news sources. Yeah, but have... I don't know why they just abandoned it. Like, if it could be with like the Roe versus Wade stuff, the um, Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, Amber Turd, uh-huh, the, cl- Johnny. Uh-huh. the clown um, show. Yep. Yeah. Just stuff like that. Like, and then again, Western people have a very short memory. They get bored of things very quickly. Yeah. And so the war in Ukraine now in mainstream media is like that Toy Story meme where that where Andy's dropping Woody and it's like I don't want to anymore. That's perfect. That is spot on. <laughs> but you know, I'm not going anywhere. I will be covering this war every single day until it's over. Like Love it. I did the math the other day of how many hours I had spent documenting just this war and it was it was disgusting <laughs> you wish you hadn't looked it up i wish yeah i wish i had not looked it up. <laughs> oh man well nick this was an absolute pleasure i think yeah. we sh- we're gonna wrap things up here i would love to eventually in the future have you back i mean as things transpire i imagine yeah, absolutely that'd be a lot of fun oh absolutely i totally agree nick so thank you so much for joining me is there any exiting pieces you would like to add here every person has a story and every story deserves to be told. Love it. The one, uh, the one of many powerful statements you've had throughout this episode. So, Nick, thank you very much for sharing your story and people's stories with us and educating myself and viewers and listeners. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Awesome. Well, folks, that's the show. I mean, that was something else. I seriously am ear to ear right now smiling with this conversation. I know I went away with, you know, feeling with more knowledge saddened almost by the sick reality of war and what it does to us as people and divides us. And as well as feel like I've learned more of what's going on in Ukraine. Cause as we mentioned, mainstream media is not covering this stuff. So I highly encourage you guys to go show Nick some love on his page battles and beers on Instagram, as well as go check out his book. I know I will be, I'm not a big reader, but I know I will be going to check out his book and going to go see that because I mean, that was just tip of the iceberg. So hopefully there'll be more to come. Guys, make sure you go in the description below, whether you're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it may be. In the description below will be Nick's Instagram page. Go check it out. As well as a link to go buy his book on Amazon. Supporting, If you support me, you'll go support him. So folks, thank you again so much for listening, watching, all that good stuff. And as always, be a friend and tell a friend. Thank you, folks. And I will see you on the next one.